Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are a look back at NFL Wildcard Weekend and predicting the outcomes for the divisional round, plus thoughts about NBA All-Star voting results so far and what has to change, and What's next after Novak Djokovic gets deported from Australia? It's episode 57 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Everybody here on Thursday, January 20th, 2022, episode number 57 coming at you of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. As I say it over and over and over, the support from back in November of last year when we started this thing to where we are now has been absolutely incredible. All of you who continue to listen, I really appreciate it. Around here in the Massachusetts area, it's been back and forth. It's just been cold and cold and cold. Uh, the, the sun it's in and out, it's in and out. Obviously it's cloudy right now. Just looking out the window really quickly. And, uh, we're just waiting for, we're waiting for the warm weather. I can't wait for that warm weather to get back, but all the while, even though it's been really, really cold recently, you still got action going on in the outdoors. Keep in mind. I mean, that game in Buffalo was incredibly cold. Cincinnati was cold. A lot of cold places, but of course that's not going to stop the NFL from continuing their playoff run, and that's how we're going to start the show, as we usually do, is talk about the NFL playoffs. And we're going to preview the divisional round as we are now down to the final eight teams. One of the eight are going to be Super Bowl champs. And obviously, we're going in line with how the schedule lines up. So we'll start with the Saturday games where we're going to see both number one seeds in action. It starts in the AFC on Saturday afternoon between the Bengals and the Titans. Now, before we get into the game, let's talk about that wild card game between Cincy and Vegas. Because honestly, the takeaway was that the refs were horrible, absolutely horrible. And they were against the Raiders, not entirely, but they were not the ultimate factor as to why Cincinnati won that game. And what bugs me the most is about the explanation. You know, as if you just come up and say, yeah, we blew the call. It was totally our mistake. But what Walt Anderson did, he needs to man up, okay? Because this was a horrible explanation. They blatantly lied about the time of the whistle. If you look at that play, it was clear as day to anyone who could hear it. The whistle came as Burrow's throw was traveling midair. And everyone stopped. The Raiders stopped. The broadcasters stopped. And they blatantly lied. They said it came after the play, after the play, okay? Now, we've heard Jerome Boger and his crew are not going to be refereeing any more playoff games, and they should, but I think it needs to go a step further. They need to take classes, okay? That's what I think the NFL should institute. If you're seeing calls as bad as we saw last Saturday between the Bengals and the Raiders in that game, then that crew needs a whole week of referencing, you know, for calls that are that bad, you know, 
you go back to instances in the past, you know, the tuck rule that ref should have been maybe give them a week of classes. The, the blatantly missed penalty in that NFC championship game between the saints and the Rams. Okay. Those refs should be in classes or at least get some kind of punishment because you can't have this thing go completely unscathed. You can't talk about it for a day or two and then move on. There has to be repercussions and the NFL Roger Goodell needs to hold these refs accountable. That's what they need to do. But like I said, the refs weren't the ultimate factor in why the Raiders lost that game. Uh, Just note on the the Raiders, Rich Passaccia, as I said the week before, he deserves to be that head coach for Vegas. Playoff win or not, okay? What he has done to turn that team around, and I know part of it is Derek Carr's play at quarterback. He's gotten better. But what he did in that locker room, within that organization, I mean, it was bad enough that the Raiders and Mark Davis fired their GM. But this guy needs to stay. He needs to stay. And I'm glad they gave him an interview. But if I'm anyone in that Raiders locker room, I am sticking my neck out for Rich Passaccia, the way he has turned this team around. This team was at six and seven at one point. And everyone was writing him off to get into the playoffs, myself included. And sure enough, they have a great stretch of games to end the regular season, all because of this guy. So give me Rich Passaccia as the head coach for the Vegas Raiders. But on the other side of the field, the Bengals, Joe Burrow in this offense is just on another level. I know it was somewhat of a subpar game for what we've seen in the past for Bengals games. I mean, Burrow was 24 of 34, 244 yards and two touchdowns. But this offense is still just incredible the kind of weapons that they have. The defense, though, does scare me a little bit. The fact that they gave up 385 yards to Vegas, okay? It is a little bit of a concern. And I think for this upcoming game against Tennessee, the offensive line is going to be under a microscope. I I really do think so, because that's going to be the difference. The offensive line and then the defense are the two factors for me. Because in that game last Saturday... Joe Burrow was only sacked twice, twice. You know, this is a guy who's been sacked more times than any other quarterback in the league this year. And the fact that offensive line only gave up two to a defensive line and a defense that had Perriman, Crosby, Ngakwe, you know, all the weapons that I mentioned on that defensive line. Props to the offensive line, and they're going to have to do it again. But if you're looking on the other side for Tennessee on that defensive line, it's going to have to start with Danico Autry. He's going to have to set that tone early on. It's got to be early on. I, I don't want him waiting until the second half, but Autry and that defensive line have to get Joe Burrow uncomfortable. And I don't mean uncomfortable in terms of getting him out of the pocket. I mean, making him nervous. You know, if he's scrambling and heading towards the sideline, chase him. You know, don't just let him. Don't play back actually go after him and get him a little bit nervous. So that's what I think is the key for Cincinnati is the offensive line. And then, as I said, defensively, because this Tennessee team, when they're healthy, are a very strong offensive unit. But of course, the Titans offense is going to be surrounded about Derrick Henry. If he's healthy, how effective is he going to be? Because when he is healthy and he doesn't have that serious foot injury, he's the best running back in the league, and I'd probably call him the best running back in the last five years. 
or so, because that's when Adrian Peterson kind of faltered off a little bit. But you look at Henry when he was healthy last year in the wild card against Baltimore, only 18 carries, only 40 yards. And we saw the formula for the Ravens last year, how effective they were in shutting down Derrick Henry. Cincinnati needs to take from that game and try and implement it themselves. And that is make Ryan Tannehill throw some interceptions and make a ton of mistakes. Okay. Cause this has been the story for Tennessee all year long. We know what uh, the running backs can do. We know what the wide receivers can do, but it's all about the quarterback play for Ryan Tannehill. If he limits the mistakes, this Tennessee team is a Super Bowl contender. But Ryan Tannehill, it's all on his shoulders. How effective is he going to be? And I think for him, confidence involves getting A.J. Brown involved, okay? A.J. Brown is probably a top 10, top 15 wide receiver in this game. You get him involved, you open up a ton for all the other weapons they have. You know, Westbrook Aquina, Julio Jones. Chester Rogers, all of the weapons that they have. The Tennessee uh, pass catching court is a very underrated unit, and it starts with A.J. Brown. You get him involved, you target him as much as you can, then you open a lot of things up for Tannehill and that offense. You know, you let Derrick Henry run wild, and you get Deontay Foreman involved as well. Now, Henry, he isn't activated yet, but he did play take part in contact practice. But you got to keep in mind, he hasn't played since Halloween. That was back in week eight. If you're doing the math, that's almost three months from when he last played in an NFL game. So is Mike Vrabel going to rush Henry into the game plan? I don't know. And I think it's that question mark that kind of makes me lean towards the Bengals a little bit, just because I don't know if that defense for Tennessee really can stop Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati offense. You know, I don't see anyone on that Tennessee secondary shutting down Jamar Chase or Tyler Boyd. You know, there are a couple of teams like this that we've seen in recent years. You look in uh, 2020 when the Titans unexpectedly made the AFC championship. Last year, the Bills unexpectedly made the AFC championship. Now think I, th- I think this year it's Cincinnati who's going to be that unexpected team to get themselves into the AFC championship. So I think for this Sunday, I know a lot of people are picking Tennessee, but I am going with the upset. I'm going to go with the Cincinnati Bengals. I think they'll find themselves in the AFC championship. Now, like I said, uh, we got two number one seeds playing. The second game, the nightcap, is the Green Bay Packers. First game of the playoffs at Lambeau, taking on San Francisco. Now, again, a note on the wild card game. San Fran, very lucky to escape that game. They're very lucky to escape Dallas with the win. I mean, they were up 27 to three at one point in the fourth quarter. Sure enough, Jimmy G throws an interception. Cowboys are coming back, but then it was Dallas doing Dallas things. Okay, 14 Cowboy penalties. I mean, that last play with the quarterback draw, 14 seconds left, and then uh, Dak Prescott handing the ball to his center instead of to the referee where he should be handing it off. I know a lot of people, especially Cowboy fans, want to look at the referees again for the reason they weren't able to win. But let's be honest, it was not the sole factor. The way the ref ran into Prescott. If Prescott just gave the ball to the ref or like put it on the line, then it would have been so much better and not handed to his center. It wouldn't be so much controversy, but again, San Fran, very lucky to escape. And for three quarters, their defense played great. Okay. Five sacks of Dak Prescott, 77 rush yards allowed, but it's similar to Tennessee. 
it's their quarterback needing to limit the mistakes, mostly on Jimmy G. Okay, Garoppolo in the game against the Cowboys, 16 to 25, 172 yards and a pick. But of course, we know that's not the reason why San Fran won offensively. Okay, it was Debo Samuel going basically being the entire offense, 10 rushes for 72 yards and a touchdown. Then you add on three catches for 38 yards. You also have Elijah Mitchell in the backfield. I think the key for San Fran is Kyle Shanahan. How creative are you going to be to get Debo Samuel involved? Because ultimately I think Samuel has gotten himself into the top 10 most dangerous weapons in the NFL right now. I'm not talking position player because he can be a running back and he can be a wide receiver, but from what he's done this year, I think he might be one of the 10 most unstoppable players that the game has. So if Green Bay can find a way to limit him, it's going to have to take a Herculean effort, essentially. You know, you can't stop him, but you can only contain him. How do they contain Debo Samuel? Because the Packers are far from the Cowboys, okay? Aaron Rodgers and that offense are not going to make the same mistakes that we've seen Dallas make over and over and over and over for years to come. I think if San Fran can get some pressure on Aaron Rodgers, I think get him uncomfortable in the pocket, you know, Armstead, Bosa, et cetera. I think the 49ers have a chance if that can happen. I think the run game is going to be absolutely crucial for Green Bay. Okay. Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, they got to really make an impact and essentially take the, take the game out of Aaron Rodgers hands in terms of, not having putting everything on Aaron Rodgers. You okay? Give him sort of a support, give him a backbone to sort of rest upon, you know, give him a rest. And we've seen over the season that Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon are able to do that. But also Zadarius Smith, Jair Alexander, David Bakhtiari, all of them coming back from injury is ginormous. Okay. We know David Bakhtiari on the offensive line is a rock for Aaron Rodgers. You asked, you could probably ask him about the offensive lineman he most wants to play with the most, and it's going to be Bakhtiari. But then on the defensive end, you got Zadarius Smith, not only rushing but dropping back in pass protection. Jair Alexander, one of the underrated cornerbacks that this game has. You know, the defense for Green Bay was already strong enough. Now when you have all these guys coming back from injury, I mean, there's going to be more than just vengeance on the mind for Green Bay from the 2020 NFC Championship. I think it's going to be, you know, not a blowout, but I think it's going to be a two-score game, and I like Green Bay in this game. You know, I, I am a big fan of San Francisco. I was rooting for them to get back into the playoffs, but I just think this is where the road ends. I think Green Bay is just unstoppable on both ends of the field, offensively and defensively, plus you got Aaron Rodgers, okay? Like I said, Dak Prescott, Aaron Rodgers, Two completely different quarterbacks. I'll take Aaron Rodgers any day of the week and twice on Sunday uh, for this game. Give me the Packers to get back to the NFC Championship for the third straight year. And maybe they can get back to the Super Bowl. Who knows? But we'll talk about that next week. We move then to the Sunday slate of games, which I think are going to be the games of the week. You know, you start in the NFC with the Rams and the Bucks. Now, they did lead 31-0 at one point. But Tampa, to me looked a little limited. I know it was the Eagles, and the Eagles are kind of one-dimensional when it comes to the running game. But for the offense, the running game, I think, has to be much more effective rather than just getting a bunch of red zone carries. I think it's got to be – that's how that's how Tom Brady is able to sustain a drive. I think when you get – obviously, injuries don't 
don't help. You know, they didn't have Ronald Jones. They didn't have Leonard Fournette. So they had to go to their third and their fourth string. And their third string is Gio Bernard, who I think is a great third string running back to have uh, with the experience that he has. But I just think, you know, they had, they put up good numbers, but I just think they got to be more effective. You know, they got to be more effective uh, against that Rams D line. How are they able to impact the game? But then on the other side of the field for Tampa on defense, I think this is going to be a much bigger test than Philly. Okay. You understand that the secondary did allow Jalen Hurts to throw for 244 yards, but most of it was garbage time, sort of near the end of the game. It was 31 nothing. It went to 31 15. So Tampa's just got to learn to close it out, close out those games. The big matchup I'll be looking for is Mike Evans and Jalen Ramsey. You know, Ramsey's going to spend a ton of time on Mike Evans. He is the number one, but I think it comes down to everyone else. You know, you look at the safeties, the linebackers. How are they going to contain the tight ends? Because you know with Brady, when you take one of his weapons away, he's going to exploit another. You know, you put in a Cameron Bray, a Rob Gronkowski, an O.J. Howard to counter someone taking away a Mike Evans or a Brashard Perriman or someone like that. On the other side for the Rams, though, the monkey is somewhat off the back for Matthew Stafford, I would say. He finally got that playoff win. But to me, it was the defense that was more of an X factor on Monday night. For the uh, LA Rams, they forced uh, Arizona into some really bad mistakes. When you when you look back on it, I mean that two yard pick six, my Kyler Murray, ugh, that was horrible, and that was all on the defense. But for the Rams, for me, it's three big takeaways uh, watching that Monday night game against the Cardinals. Getting Cam Akers back, ginormous, ginormous for that offense. Between him and Sony Michelle, they rushed the ball thirty times for a buck thirteen. Okay. That's going to be huge for L.A. is getting a running game to back up Matt Stafford. Number two, Odell Beckham Jr., like this, like we've seen, tag him along with Cooper Cup. That's a dangerous combo right there. OBJ, four catches, 54 yards, a touchdown. Plus, he had that trick play in the 40-yard pass. I would not put my money against Beckham getting more and more targets because you've got Cooper Cup, who – numbers-wise, was the best wide receiver in football this year. Then you've got Beckham, who can uh, change the game in a heartbeat. I think those two are a very good combination. I think that's what L.A. was looking for when they did acquire OBJ. But then the third thing that I saw is Von Miller's Super Bowl experience is showing. Okay, This is a guy who played linebacker. He's played linebacker for over 10 seasons, number two pick in the draft has a Super Bowl ring. He was the Super Bowl MVP, and you could see it not only on the field, but on the sideline. His playoff experience is showing through, and I think he's going to be the key. He's going to be the key for the Rams to win this game. Now, the Rams are my Super Bowl pick. I would love to take a chance, and ultimately, I'm kind of deciding now. I didn't really come up with a conclusion as to who I think will win this game until now, but just looking at it, I, I do think, you know, you can't bet against Tom Brady. And even though I did that multiple times last year, you know, I bet against him and against him and against him, and he kept proving me wrong. So I, it's, it's hard to say, but I think, I think the Rams are going to take this one. I, I really, I'm going to, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it real quick. I just think, again, you don't bet against Tom Brady. I know I did it multiple times. I have to learn my lesson. And even if I'm wrong, I will be wrong as long as I pick Tom Brady. If Rams, I'd be comfortable against anyone else. 
but you know Tom Brady has been doing this for 20-plus years. How do you go against him unless you know he's a surefire underdog by like 10 points or whatever? I can't do that. I think Tampa at home is going to win this game, get themselves back into the NFC Championship, and keep their hopes alive for a repeat. You know, we haven't seen a back-to-back champ since Tom Brady did it with the Patriots back in the mid-2000s. So we'll see what Tampa can do with that. But then the last game to end it, for the divisional round are the bills and the chiefs. Now this, this is going to be the game of the week. This is going to be the game because this is essentially the super bowl. These are two super bowl caliber teams, especially when you saw them in the wild card round. I ultimately think this winner is going to be in the super bowl. Whoever wins this game is going to represent the AFC in the super bowl. That's how confident I am in these two teams. Now, Josh Allen and the offense, If they, obviously, this is kind of a no-brainer and the understatement of the year that if the offense performs at the level they did last Saturday against the Patriots, it's not going to matter who is on defense, okay? Allen went 21 of 25, 308 yards, five touchdowns, okay? 174 team rush yards for a team that struggles running the ball. Seven possessions, seven touchdowns. You know the only times they didn't score a touchdown? was when it was the end of the first half and the end of the football game. And they didn't punt again against this New England team. So that is going to be crucial. Can this offense sustain the firepower it is? Now, Kansas City, they are not the New England defense. They are so much better, at least down the stretch to the end of the regular season, than we saw from New England. They're much better than that. And Kansas City, we know that they can shake off some rust early on. The game isn't over after the first quarter. I mean, look at what happened after the T.J. Watt fumble uh, return for the touchdown. 35 unanswered points for Kansas City. I think, you know, with that defense the way it goes, and with the Bills offense being statistically the best defense, the top defense in the regular season, which D can force the mistakes from the opposing powerhouse because we know points are going to be coming a plenty. I mean, look at last year's AFC championship, 38 to 24 Kansas city won, and the bills are going to have to have a much bigger lead than nine. Nothing. That's, that's why that's the, again, another understatement of the year, but which defense can shut down the opposing powerhouse. Okay. Will Pat Mahomes throw the interception first or will Josh Allen do it? It's almost like a chess match. Who's going to blink first. So watch for Sean McDermott and Andy Reid on those sidelines. I think in my eyes, I'm going to pick Kansas City. They have just been rolling and rolling and rolling. They had one little hiccup in Cincinnati, but even that was an end of the game kind of thing. I like Kansas City to pull out the victory in this game. So that's those are the games that I really think. I think it's going to be Cincinnati against Kansas City, and then it's going to be Green Bay against Tampa Bay in the AFC and NFC championships. But regardless of what result happens, I am looking forward to some great action for the NFL postseason. Turn now to the NBA, and before you know it, All-Star break is coming up in mid-February. The game's going to take place in Cleveland. Uh, Just happened a few minutes ago from when uh, we are recording the final voting update uh, that we're getting publicly 
for the starters from fan voting. Because if you remember, fan voting is 50% of the uh, votes for who becomes a starter in the All-Star game. Saturday is when the voting comes to an end. And there are some things I really want to take away. We're looking at the update right now. LeBron James leading all players in fan votes. No surprise there. But what was surprising was just last week, it was Steph Curry who was the leading vote getter in the Western Conference. And honestly, I would kind of love to see someone other than LeBron be the captain for the Western or whoever team it is, you know, not team LeBron, because he's been a captain since the for- this format of basically pickup basketball was introduced back in 2018. He's been a captain every single year. So I'd love to see someone change. I mean, we've seen LeBron and Giannis twice. Last year, we saw LeBron and KD. It would be kind of nice to, to see some kind of change. You know, I would love... I would love to see that, but who knows what the fans are going to do? Who really knows what they're going to do? But there are some other instances that, you know, make me realize, oh, this is why fans have less star- less value to starters in years past. Because, of course, the format was changed when Zaza Pachulia nearly became a starter for the Western Conference front court. But there are some things that I'm seeing uh, with the voting from fans that really make me realize you know maybe their vote should count less and less and less and we start in the eastern conference and right now the projected starters i think are right on the money right now it would be trey young demar Derozan in the backcourt then you've got kevin durant Giannis antetokounmpo and joel Embiid. i think those five are absolutely perfect i think the one exception you could make is maybe james harden over trey young just because of his you know near triple double averages you know stuff like that but i think these five are absolutely perfect you got trey young continuing to do trey young things demar Derozan is having a huge comeback here he's already comeback player of the year in my eyes you got kevin durant arguably the best player in basketball the greek freak and then you got joel Embiid, who put up 50 points in 27 minutes last night unreal So the starters, I think, are right on the money. It's after that where I'm really concerned. And you start in the the backcourt. You got a guy like Kyrie Irving, who is sixth right now among guards, despite only playing four games. He's only played four games. He's a road player. He's a part-time player. And he's sixth in the voting. Similar to that, you got Derek Rose, seventh. He hasn't played in a month. He only averages 12 points. He's only started four games this year. It's mostly been off the bench, okay? It's a shame when you've got these two guys who don't even do anything, and they're ahead of guys who deserve it more, like Fred Van Vliet from the Raptors, Darius Garland of the Cavs, and Jalen Brown of the Celtics, who are 8, 9, and 10, okay? All three guys, those three guys that I just listed, are at or near 20 points a game averaged. And they're not even close to Kyrie Irving right now. Just looking at the votes, it Kyrie has about 845,000 votes. Fred Van Vliet has 577,000 votes. I should also mention with the update, Van Vliet uh, jumped past Derrick Rose. Rose is in eighth, Van Vliet is in seventh. But still, the fact that they're all lumped into that. Then you got a guy like Darius Garland, Jalen Brown, who have... Uh, 343,000 and 330,000 votes. I mean, Garland, in my eyes, should be an all-star since the game is in Cleveland, okay? He's averaging nearly 20 points a game and eight assists per game on a team that's in sixth 
right now in the Eastern Conference. Who would have thought the Cleveland Cavaliers would be in sixth place in the Eastern Conference? That is how sad this thing is for fan voting, is that they look at a small sort of city like Cleveland. They see the big names like Kyrie or Derrick Rose. You know, I don't know exactly who's voting. I don't know, like, whether the age gap or something like that. But I feel like if this voting continues to happen and – like you see guys like Kyrie Irving who hasn't played or Derrick Rose who hasn't played seeing them get huge votes is, is kind of sad for what the fan base of uh, the NBA is looking like. And that's quite kind of similar in the front court. I mean, the front court doesn't have as many problems as the backcourt in the East. You know, I think after those three, you got Tate, uh, Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Jared Allen, Pascal Siakam, Bam Adebayo, Miles Bridges. I think those are perfect. But 10th, LaMarcus Aldridge, really? I understand Aldridge is coming back from retiring, but I don't even think he should be included. You know, I love the return that Aldridge has had, you know, averaging 13 points and over five and a half rebounds in 30 games. But again, they've been mostly off the bench. He's option number, I'd say, seven or eight for Brooklyn off of that bench. And yet he's in the top 10. I just don't see that. I don't know what what is what are the fans seeing? You know, that just makes me question it so much. But I mean, the East is nothing compared to what we've seen in the Western Conference. I mean, there's a lot of instances where you're just wondering why or what are you doing? What are you doing? Because in the front court, it's right now you got LeBron James and Nikola Jokic at the top two right now. That that's a given, you know, they're right on the money. But after that is just a complete mess. I mean, looking at positions three through seven, Andrew Wiggins, Paul George, Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, and Carmelo Anthony, they're three through seven. Really? I understand Andrew Wiggins is having a great bounce back year. I mean, many were writing him off when he was the number one pick in 2014. And now that he's in Golden State, now that he's playing with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green, He's averaging 18 and a half points per game, but he shouldn't be the third best front court player in the Western Conference. He should not. He should probably, you know, top 10 would be okay, but not number three. I would not put him at number three. Draymond Green and Carmelo Anthony aren't even worth considering in my eyes. Okay, Draymond, I looked at the numbers. He doesn't even average more than eight points a game. And Carmelo Anthony, he's just a nostalgic kind of vote. They shouldn't even be in the consideration. And then you've got Paul George and Anthony Davis. They've been out for injuries, and yet fans still want to vote them in, okay? You've got guys who are much more worthy of that, like Carl Anthony Towns, okay? What he's done for Minnesota, the way Minnesota has bounced back from basically the hole of despair in the Western Conference, him and Anthony Edwards – are doing incredible things. Towns deserves more love. He really does. And then Rudy Gobert, he's he's got the Jazz in the top three, top four of the West, and he's in ninth. And then DeAndre Ayton for Phoenix is in tenth. I that front court just I want to talk to like those fans, you know, who vote in the Western. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to talk to those fans in the Western Conference and just ask, what are you doing? What are you doing with this front court? Now, the back court, a little bit more controlled, I would say. I think top three, again, right on the money. 
Steph Curry, John Morant are your projected starters. I think pinpoint, pinpoint accuracy. Because if John Morant wouldn't, if he wasn't voted a starter, I would throw a riot if that didn't happen. If John Morant didn't get that recognition, I would be throwing a huge fit. So I think that's on the money. And then Luka Doncic right behind him, I think that's absolutely perfect. But the fact that Clay Thompson is sitting in the fourth spot among backcourt, and he's only played five games. Why is he on the list? Because he's Clay Thompson? The dude hasn't played in nearly two years, and you still want to give him over a million votes? Really, fans? I get the sympathy aspect, but not that kind of point. And then you've got Damian Lillard right now sitting in the ninth spot. Again, his shooting numbers are career lows right now in points and in shooting, and he's been out since New Year's Eve. Again, you see the big name and you just go for the vote. I don't think they should even be on those lists, those two, okay? Devin Booker sitting at five. Clearly, you know, he should be in consideration. Russell Westbrook at sixth? Okay, Chris Paul, who is seventh, and Donovan Mitchell, who is eighth, they should all be in front of Russell Westbrook right now. I understand he's making the headlines. This dude just got benched by his head coach. Didn't even play in the last half of the fourth, uh, last parts of the fourth quarter against Indiana last night in a game that they still lost. What Chris Paul and Donovan Mitchell are doing is much more than what Clay Thompson, Damian Lillard, and Russell Westbrook have done combined this year. So I am, again, looking at the fans wondering, what are you doing? But the good news is the fan vote doesn't solely predict who's going to be the starters. They have a smaller influence than usual. And hopefully players, coaches, media, they all get it right for who should be starting in the all-star game in Cleveland in February. next big headline we want to talk about isn't necessarily something that's going on the court it's off the court and we go to the world of tennis because not only is the sports world talking about it but the entire world is talking about the situation with Novak Djokovic the number one player in the world in terms of male tennis just got deported okay not just saying his visa was canceled he got deported from Australia you know this is a guy you know, let's just keep in mind, he's a vocal anti-vaxxer. He has been very mum on to why he won't get the vaccine and what exactly happened into why he's applying for, you know, an exception for his visa being canceled once again. But he has made multiple attempts to play on the Australian Open, and it finally came to a head the Sunday. I think it was the Saturday or the Sunday before the tournament was about to start, and the Australian government said no. Absolutely no. And sure enough, his visa gets canceled. He can't play in the Australian Open. And now people are wondering what is next after this, because this is the first, I would say one of the first instances where uh, the vaccine, the COVID vaccine has been a factor into uh, players playing or not. I think, you know, the first instance has to be with uh, New York and uh, California putting their vaccine mandates in. Obviously, we had the situation with Kyrie Irving. Uh, Bradley Beal was unvaccinated at one point. Then you had Andrew Wiggins, who was unvaccinated at one point. 
but I think this is probably the biggest that we've seen because if you, if you haven't followed what Australia has done since the pandemic started, they've basically been in lockdown for probably over a year, you know, before the vaccines came around, they just said, no one comes in, no one goes out. And that was for a whole year at one point before the vaccines came in. So the, the fact that Djokovic, even with a vax, without the vaccine, tried to uh, get himself into this just show, just shows, you know, how much of a villain he really became because Australia is heavy, heavy, heavy on the vaccine once it came out. Once that vaccine came out and enough people got the shot, uh, the people of Australia, the government said, okay, we'll let you in under these circumstances. So they're still kind of, you know, locked down in terms of, uh, you know, who can come in, who can come out and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'd probably put, you know, Canada and maybe uh, some European countries in that same category. We've seen Europe go into a lockdown with this Omicron wave. Canada is being very, uh, they're being persistent about having a vaccine to be able to enter the country. And if you test positive, you have to stay in the country while you're there. But to this situation itself, you know, it dragged out forever and ever and ever. This gone on, I think, for maybe two or three weeks at one point. And you're starting to notice from other players how much of a distraction it is and how irritating they were. You have a guy like Nick Kyrgios, who is basically uh, the tennis bad boy. And he's saying, you know, this guy, this guy is a big distraction and we don't need that for the sport of tennis. And this is coming from a guy like Kyrgios, who is essentially the equivalent of, you know, a, a bad boy, like maybe a Chad Johnson or a T.O. who's always not necessarily getting in like big trouble, but it's just like kind of a nuisance. And then you have on the women's side, Victoria Azarenka promoting the WTA having that COVID vaccine mandate saying that's a great rule by the WTA. I'm glad that we can do it. And you're seeing, you know, how effective it is in the uh, first couple uh, sets and matches in the Australian Open. You got, you know, everyone's a lot more lighthearted now that uh, the Djokovic situation is in the rearview mirror, at least for the time being. You know, you got Kyrgios drinking a beer out of a fan's hand. You got uh, Naomi Osaka, who says she's now having fun after the turmoil that she had gone through with her mental health within the past year. So you're seeing a lot more lighthearted, you know, now that the Djokovic situation is out of the Australian Open. But now it comes to mind, you know, what happens for the French Open or the U.S. Open, you know, all these other majors or Wimbledon, you know. Because if Australia is just as, you know, locked in on these sort of vaccine mandates, think about what the state of New York has done. Think about what most European countries have done. And think about just think about how Djokovic is carrying himself. He's carrying himself like he's on this high pedestal saying, even if I'm unvaccinated, I get all of this. And Australia was really the first country and the real first government to say, no, you're I don't care if you're one of the best athletes in the world. Even if you're unvaccinated, you're under the same circumstances as everyone else. And as long as he just said, you know, why he was applying for an exemption to this visa, you know, he had said, you know, oh, I tested positive for COVID and stuff like that. Just come clean with it. That's all you got to do. 
So I think in terms of what's next for the overarching question is this is going to happen again when it gets closer to the next major, which is the French Open. You know, we're hearing about the WTA. We're hearing the Australian uh, tennis organization saying like, you know, this thing shouldn't have carried out as much as it did. I think, you know, officials for the French Open and the French government are going to make a decision right then and there. You know, even if he does try to apply for another exemption to whatever kind of visa it is, I think they're just going to come out right then and there and say, if you're unvaccinated, you can't do this. You can't do that. You know, obviously the world could be in a whole different spot. You know, we're hearing that this Omicron wave is uh, near the end. You know, that's what we're hearing. We don't know how far away it is, but we know that it's coming to an end at some point. So the world could be in a whole different stage. But if when we get to the French Open, it's in the same spot it is right now. I think that organizers for the French Open and the government are going to say, you know, this is your status, no changing, no matter what you sort of apply for. And really for Djokovic, this is kind of like a stain on his legacy for basically being kind of mute about this whole situation and not just, you know, he's being, he's a super public anti-vaxxer if you, if you've read about him. So if he continues to stay on this path, you got a lot of people who are going to be against him. You got, if he plays in the French open, the crowd's going to be against him. You go to New York, they're going to be against him everywhere he goes. He's just going to be public enemy number one. So if Djokovic doesn't change his ways, then ultimately, you know, he's going to be looked back as someone who was kind of an egotistical jerk in terms of the the tennis world. You got guys saying, I don't care if he does break the major mark by Roger Federer. I think he's not the best or whatever, you know, character or not. But the situation has finally quelled down. And at least for people who are fans of tennis, we can get back to the action on the court of the Australian Open. move to our let's get local segment of the week and boy do we got a lot to talk about specifically about the patriots because i have got a lot of takes so we are gonna it's gonna feel a lot like a rant it's gonna feel a lot like upset and bitter and all that but let's just face it the wild card game in buffalo last saturday was embarrassing absolutely embarrassing 47 to 17 You'd think there'd be some kind of fight in New England, but from the moment that Jake Bailey got the opening kickoff, the Pats were basically shown up. And I'm not going to say, I'm going to say embarrassed, absolutely embarrassed. I don't care who you are, anyone in that organization, if you're associated with the Patriots, should feel embarrassed the way this team didn't even put up a fight against this Buffalo team. They didn't even, they just were not ready. They were not ready at all. And I think most people, you know, Patriots fans, experts, they weren't expecting huge results. You know, maybe the Patriots putting up more of a fight, but not coming out with the victory. But to get shown up the way they did, to be down 30 points, okay? I don't care who you are, what department you're in. If you're associated with the New England Patriots, 
you should feel embarrassed. I don't care if the season was better than you expected. The way you went out is a way the Belichick team has never gone out. He's been embarrassed before, but never like this. Never like this. And ultimately, this team is going on a fire sale, I think. If you look at that defense, almost everyone, I would say, is on a fire sale, which is what I said after Saturday. But then taking some days and kind of tracking everything back, I had to look at the game more precisely and realize not everyone, not every single player wasn't ready to play. I mean, look at what the kid Mac Jones did. He put up, he just was a gamer. He's a gamer, and that's the quarterback you want to have for multiple years now. I don't, not one year, more year, or two more years. You want him to have a sustained career. The way he continued to play, he was still able to get, you know, Jacoby Myers, Kendrick Bourne. He still got them involved, okay? So even though it was very embarrassing by almost everybody, Mac Jones gives me a lot of confidence that this kid just didn't quit. He did not quit at all, no matter how much they got up by. And if you look at that second half, you know, they were shut out in that first half. And you look at the interceptions too. That first pick, I should say, on the first drive, incredible play by Micah Hyde. I think, you know, um, I think it was Aguilar who was on the, uh, who was the receiver and Jones on the throw. I think there was really nothing you could do. I mean, the only thing you could have done is maybe throw it a little bit, just a little bit farther where maybe Aguilar dives for it. But Micah Hyde with just an incredible interception. I got to give him credit on that one. And then the second interception, that was deflected. You know, I, I didn't see exactly who it was. But again, this kid is a gamer. This guy did not quit. He did not give up. And that's what you want to see. That's what you want to see, especially from a young guy like this. So Mac Jones, you know, I applaud him for his effort in that game. And it's not the offense's fault. Were they, you know, stalled out for most of the game? Absolutely. But they were not the sole reason as to why they got themselves eliminated from the playoffs. It was all on the defense. Okay. And I'm only looking at a few guys, you know, I had said almost everyone on the defense is pretty much on a fire sale. I only have a handful of guys I would keep on that roster. I would keep Matt Judon. I would keep Devin McCourty. I would probably keep uh, JC Jackson, Adrian Phillips, Kyle Duggar. There are only a few, but I look at that linebacking core. I see no future. They're all old and slow. I look at that defensive line. I see no one who can make an impact. I don't know if Judon was hurt or if he just wasn't into it. You know, there are just some guys that I wouldn't be, you know, in past years, I would say, oh, why does he have to go? Why does he have to go? But I look at a guy like Dante Hightower. He's an age. He's done being effective. You know, they had to stop the pass and they didn't do that. Okay. They have three linebackers, that linebacking core, Hightower, Van Noy, Collins. They're all up there in age and they're meant to stop the run. They're big linebackers. But how about a linebacker that could actually cover someone or a linebacker that can actually get to a player after they make the catch? Okay. That first touchdown where Allen was scrambling all around. And he had, I don't know, maybe 10 seconds in the pocket. And even when he got forced out, that's on the linebackers. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all on the linebackers, the fact they couldn't track him down. So I think when you're looking at the season, as I said last week, it's a success, but it's a terrible way to go out. Absolute terrible way to go out. 
And this defense needs to do a reset because I think offensively, you've got most of your pieces there. You've got your quarterback. You've got your backfield in the, in the running game. You've got most of your wide receivers, you know. You got Kendrick Bourne. He's locked in. Jacoby Myers, I would lock him in. I would lock in Hunter Henry as well. But I still think there needs to be a game-changing number one wide receiver. And, you know, there are options in free agency. You know, you got guys who are on a prove-it year. They might want to prove it again. Maybe like a Juju Smith-Schuster who wants to know who his quarterback is, you know, possibly. It's, it's just hard to say. You know, I don't have the free agency list right in front of me. But all I know is there are only a handful of guys that I would bring back on this defensive team. And it was absolutely sad watching that game last Saturday. Absolutely sad. But they weren't the only team that caused a little bit of sadness. Let's talk about the Boston Bruins getting their hot streak snapped in a really bad way. Let's also keep in mind that was the same night that Willie O'Ree's number was retired. And I'm going to be the first one to admit it. I didn't know a lot about Willie O'Ree until uh, recently, you know, within the last year or two. And what he's done and what he did being the first African-American to play in the National Hockey League and then uh, starting these foundations um, with the NHL is absolutely inspiring. And there's, you know, very few people that I think deserve this more than Willie O'Ree. I think that number two hanging in the rafters of the TD Garden is something I'm definitely going to be looking for the next time I go to the TD Garden. I'm going to be looking around for that number 22 along the Bruins' uh, retired numbers and – Willie O'Ree is just an incredible person uh, and he's earned everything that has come to him with all the honors he's given the Jersey retirement, getting into the hall of fame. He has earned it every step of the way, but that was before the game. Let's talk about during the game where they played to Carolina losing seven to three last Tuesday. Let's be honest. Five first period goals given up by Tuka Rask. Okay. He got pulled after one. And Linus Allmark only gave up two within those last two periods. Now, it was 5-1 to one going into the first intermission, so Bruins' offense weren't quite where they were. But if you're looking at Carolina in the standings, they're one of the top teams right now in that East. And it just kind of shows, you know, this is a very hot team, but they, the Bruins still have uh, some ways to go, you know, in terms of catching up. You know, they've played great. Don't get me wrong. I don't think this totally derails them from – uh, the hot streak that they were just on. I don't think it derails them at all, but it kind of makes you reset and realize, okay, this can, the season can, can turn just like that. Cause I mean, when you look at, you know, the hurricanes, they got 54 points now over 36 games. They're 26, eight and two. And I understand the Bruins during the streak, you know, beat Tampa, but it was just kind of like a good look into the mirror for uh, the Bruins in terms of, yeah, this is a good line change, but you got to sustain it, absolutely sustain it. And we get to see it tonight against the Capitals if they are able to bounce back. Because let's be honest, you know, the offense was playing incredible until that point. They were playing absolutely incredible. And then 7-1 to came, and uh, that ruined everything. But, you know, you get – the Capitals, you get the Winnipeg Jets, you get the Ducks, then you go to Colorado, Arizona, Dallas. You know, this is this is an important stretch. You know, these are all 
high profile teams and how can you sustain with them? Okay. We saw the Bruins beat Washington. We saw them beat Tampa, but we saw them lose to Minnesota. Who's a good team and lose to Carolina. Who's a really good team. Now you've got a stretch of probably four straight games against really good opponents. I would say. So how is that second line going to adapt? Are, is Bruce Cassidy going to stick with that? Or is he going back to uh, his normal line? Is he going to stick with Pasternak being on that second line uh, with Taylor Hall? Because so far it's working and everyone else is benefiting from that. It's just hard to see, you know, it, it's hard to see a team after losing seven to one, you know, try and see them sort of bounce back from that. Because let's be honest, it's hard to bounce back from a game like that. But I think these Bruins can do it. You know, one little game like that, everyone's going to have one of those games. If you're playing an 82 game season, there's bound to be one, two, or a handful of them that have results like this. So no need to panic if you're a Bruins fan, but just keep your eyes and ears open for this next stretch of games for the Boston Bruins, especially on the defensive end. That's where I think they got to get better. But speaking of getting better, the Celtics are the last team we'll talk about. And again, they show inconsistencies throughout the week. They start the week with great wins against the Bulls and the Pelicans. But then last night, having a bad loss to Charlotte, and I mean bad. They were 14 of 46 from three. And you look at their two stars, Jason Tatum, 0 for 7. Jalen Brown, 2 for 11. I understand that the Hornets are a really good team, and they, don't have, and they didn't have Marcus Smart or Rob Williams for that game. Smart, obviously, uh, still coming back from COVID protocols, and Rob Williams uh, had the birth of a child. So, I mean, I'm not, again, similar to the Bruins, I'm not really holding out, you know, this Hornets game as, you know, I just see him as an outlier because it really looks like that Jason Tatum and Jalen uh, Brown are starting to work together. It looks like they're really starting to work together. They're starting to believe it. And you're seeing it, you know, from the uh, last game. You saw a guy like Jason Tatum was struggling from the field. I think he only ended with like 12 points. But meanwhile, Jalen Brown had, I think, like 20-ish, you know, something like that. I don't have the exact number right in front of me. But, you know, we're learning that those two are able to just like dump it off to whoever's got the hot hand. And that's what's really been the key. And I look at that game against the Knicks where they lost at the buzzer and a blew the 25 point lead. I think that's where they really started to turn things around. I think the win against Chicago, I think was maybe the game of the year, not necessarily by performance, but just the resolve that the team had. I mean, scoring the last eight points against the top team in the Eastern conference, one of the top teams in the Eastern conference, I understand they didn't have uh, some guys, but still that's sort of what we've been missing from the Celtics team is just a strong, you know, fourth quarter run, where they're in some kind of deficit or, you know, something like that. And we see them come back and they win this game. That's sort of the confidence that we're seeing. But again, they continue to hover around that 500 mark. And obviously the schedule is not going to get any easier for this Celtics team. The thing is though, you know, I talked last week about the trade deadline, you know, what kind of pieces are starting to fit? And, you know, I think we're starting to get that. You know, you look at a guy like Josh Richardson, who's great off the bench. I think when you have a healthy lineup that contains Al Horford and Rob Williams and Marcus Smart, um, you're starting to see that those are kind of the glue guys that you can that you can set in. You know, you still hold out for Dennis Schroeder, 
You know, you still hold out for uh, Romeo Langford or Aaron Neesmith or Peyton Pritchard because you only have a handful of guys that you can really count on. And as I said, these next couple of games are going to be huge. You get Friday at home against Portland. You're on the road Sunday against Washington. You host Sacramento. And then you travel to Atlanta. Okay. That's a lot of back and forth. So if you can go three and one in that stretch, you can get confidence back, not only from the fans, but in your own locker room, if you're able to put on those consistent performances like that. But before we end the segment, of course, with the Celtics, small trade was made that I should point out three team trade between Denver, San Antonio, and Boston. PJ Dozier and Bull Bull are coming to Boston. Juancho Hernan Gomez on their way to San Antonio. And really, I don't expect much. I mean, you got a guy like Bull Bull, who's basically a bench guy, and he's hurt right now. He's out 8 to 12 weeks. And then P.J. Dozier, I understand, like, the sympathy of, you know, he was drafted by the Celtics. That's where he started his career. But, I mean, I don't think much playing time is really expected by those two guys. I think they're both just going to be, you know, bench fillers. And, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they get dealt once again once it hits to the uh, trade deadline. But, again, consistency, whichever way you can get it, is what Brad Stevens and Ime Udoka is looking for from the Celtics team. So we'll have to see what all these teams do heading into the last half of January, because we know in the city of Boston, the cold temperatures fall, but the action rises. to end our show as we always do it's our lol moment of the week and again we stay local with a local boston athlete and this is a little bit of a delayed moment of the week it did happen a little bit over a week ago but i had to include it i had to include it just because it was absolutely hilarious and there was no way i was going to go on this podcast without bringing this up at all so to get right into it this week's lol moment of the week goes to Julian Edelman, the future Pats Hall of Famer. Now, what does he do? Well, let's be honest. Edelman has earned quite a bit of money throughout his career in the NFL and with the New England Patriots. But in terms of how he spent it, probably not the smartest move, I would say, with his money. What does he do? He goes and he bets $100,000 on the Super Bowl to be the Patriots versus the Bucks. Now, that should open your eyes right then and there. Like, what are you doing, Edelman? I mean, talk about someone who is riding high on that Patriots winning streak between those two. I mean, there was at one point, Pats were called the best team in the AFC at one point. They sat in the number one spot. And you know Edelman, who is a Patriot through and through. From the moment he got drafted, from the minute he retired, he was going to ride that team no matter until until he goes to the grave. He was, he's going to ride with New England until he's dead. And sure enough, he decides to go Pats and Bucks because he's still got his best friend Tom Brady still playing. He's got his team who was playing great. He goes and throws down $100,000, okay? That's way too much, way too much. And that's just coming from a guy who it doesn't even come close, not even within, within a smell or a touch 
of a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, why not put down maybe two thousand or five thousand or something small, not a hundred thousand dollars? But I think what got me though with this situation was uh, he made a hilarious TikTok. Uh, you saw on his video, his agent was outside on the phone. He was kind of all animated. You know, he was saying, this is good. This is good. But what got me was the call with his parents. He wanted uh, the phone call with his mom and his dad to be recorded. And this is what happened. Mom. What? Don't get mad. What? Don't get mad. What, Joel? What, Joel? I just put $100,000 for the Pats to play the Bucks in the Super Bowl. No, you didn't do that. That was... That, we're, we're put 100K. You put 100000 down on that? I already put $100,000 for the Buccaneers to play the Patriots in the Super Bowl. If they go, I make a lot of money. Oh, I don't care about that. Right on. You just share it with me. <laughs> that was dumb. Is that why you called me? That's the only reason why I called you. And I love you. I'll call you back. I'm not mad. I disagree. Bye. That's just that is one one dedicated parenting staff right there with mom and dad. <laughs> My favorite lines were mom, don't get mad, which is always not a good sign, no matter who is calling. If you got a son or a daughter who starts off the conversation like that, it's not going the right way. And then, of course, we know the story with his dad, how much he pushed him as a kid. Obviously, if you saw the uh, Edelman documentary a few years ago, I mean, his dad was just more disappointed. <laughs> the line saying that was dumb or I disagree. I mean, that's just, you know, that's Mr. Edelman. That's Big Julian just uh, doing his own thing. So we know we know how his parents are. But Julian Edelman for thinking that a Pat Buck Super Bowl is worth one hundred thousand dollars. If you actually thought that really was going to happen, well, then I guess you deserve to be on this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that does it for another edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're listening to us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or watching us on YouTube. Make sure, as always, you follow our other pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.